Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're here with a delight. <laughs> this is an unexpected delight. <laughs> we didn't think we were going to do this one. And then we got a request and we said, you know what? We're going to do it. And I think that we had decided to see this like independent of even talking to each other. And then once we had confirmed that we both had an interest in it, we're like, okay, yeah, like this is unavoidable. <laughs> we're covering Megan. That's correct. And since this movie is in theaters, you know, Shay and I aren't going to have the beat by beat plot that we usually do, but we're going to do our best with the help of Wikipedia to help us remember the big moments. But of course, we have some other things to talk about, some theories to give. Looking forward to talking about this one and what the hell it could possibly mean. This shit is ridiculous. <laughs> it's so ridiculous, but I can't believe how much I enjoyed it. So much fun. So much fun. So getting into our ladies, we have Gemma, who is played by Allison Williams. And Allison Williams, just through her filmography so far, has done such a good job of unsettling me. <laughs> She's in Get Out. She's uh -huh. in The Perfection. And in both movies, she plays a sinister-leaning character, which I don't think is a spoiler at this point, mm -hmm. based on like what we know about both of these movies. And then she's also in the show Girls. I don't know anything about that, but those are mostly what she's known for. She's just so good <laughs> in those movies. She's great in this movie, too, but she's so good at playing sinister that the entire time going into this, I didn't trust her. Oh... And I even saw an interview with Dead Meat. He had even asked, like, yeah, you've really played sinister characters up until this point. How was it playing a more sympathetic protagonist type of character? And she had even said that the idea that she, in her prior horror works, was playing a more sinister character predisposed audience to be wary of Gemma going into the film, which is exactly what they wanted. Oh, that is so smart. Like they knew what her typecasting was at that point. So they kind of knew that casting her, because she's also an executive producer on the film, but they knew that casting her as this like <laughs> sympathetic protagonist was really going to disarm people from the start, being that she engineers a killing robot. <laughs> well, I haven't seen Get Out yet because I'm so scared and I've never seen The Perfection. But even without prior knowledge of her roles, I still felt a little bit unsettled by her because of my fear of her motherhood. <laughs> right. We'll get into more of that later, but just feeling a little bit concerned about, and look, talk about backseat driving. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that makes perfect sense. Like her reputation as an actress paired with the situation that she's in and has to navigate, I definitely think sows some distrust or concern, we might say, with the audience. And then our next character is also well-known in the horror genre. We have Katie, who is played by Violet McGraw. Now, she is Little Nell in The Haunting of Hill House. So she plays Victoria Pedretti's younger self in The Haunting oh. of Hill House. She's also in Doctor Sleep, which I'm really excited to see Doctor Sleep. And then another movie called Separation. And this was just a fun fact. Her older sister, Madeline, is also an actress and starred in 2021's The Black Phone. Oh, nice. I remember hearing about The Black Phone. Yeah. And then we have the titular Megan, <gasps> short for Model 3 Generative Android. And her physicality is played by Amy Donald with lots of face prosthetics and CGI around her eyes. But the physicality was all Amy. Wow. Like in terms of the robotic movements and all of that. And I wrote this even reminds me of Elena Fokina in the Suspiria remake where she's the contortionist in that one mirror hall kill. Oh my gosh. Like she does such a good job just with the like robotic movements, the dancing. Like, yes. come on. And then she is voiced by Jenna Davis. 
So some pre-plot trivia. This was written by Akila Cooper, and she's also well-known in the horror genre. She wrote Malignant, which I'm super excited for us to cover eventually, the movie Hellfest, and then the upcoming The Nun 2. We can't get away from this franchise, no matter how hard we try. (laughs) It's everywhere. It's directed by Gerard Johnstone and then produced by James Wan and Jason Blum. Mm -hmm. Obviously, two very huge names. And according to the Wikipedia, the idea of the film began when Wan's Atomic Monster Productions was brainstorming story ideas and chose one about a killer doll. Although Wan's 2014 film Annabelle is also about a killer doll, he said pretty much the concept is about embracing technology too much and relying too much on it and what happens when technology runs amok. It's a commentary on the world we live in and it feels relevant. I've never seen the Annabelle movies, but this Megan movie doesn't seem like it's anything like any other doll horror movie that exists. Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, that paranormal element that seems like it has to exist in doll movies just because of what we're used to is completely absent here. And it's just so different. Yeah, this, if anything, reminds me of iRobot, like much mm. more of like a futuristic thriller than it does of a child's play or it anything like that. It feels like Black Mirror. I've read some reviews that this feels like a very long Black Mirror episode. Mm. And then in terms of just some fun marketing stuff, actors dressed as Megan showed up to the LA Rams and LA Chargers NFL game on Sunday, January 1st to help promote the film. They even did a dance midfield during halftime. Was your movie theater packed when you went to see this? No, I went in a matinee on like a Tuesday, so I wasn't. Mine was. Oh, yeah. I was with a friend of mine and I leaned over and I was like, it feels like it's 2002 up in here. Really? Like, I can't remember the last time I went to a packed theater. So it was really exciting. So I guess this marketing scheme worked. And they've been leading back into that. I mean, I know we talked a lot about that with things like the Blair Witch Project, but even that movie Smile, which I don't think we'll cover. I didn't like it very much. You can hate on me later. But like even the fact that that movie did similar marketing styles where they had people smiling very unnaturally in the background of like news reports and at baseball games wearing neon printed t-shirts with the movie title on it. And it allowed for people to screen grab it and be like, what the fuck is going on? Like what's happening? I can just imagine like a bunch of fucking Megans doing the Megan dance <laughs> on a fucking football field must have been just a sight to see. I feel like especially with TikTok dances being such a trendy thing to do, I think it's a pretty genius way to grab everyone's attention and to keep them talking about it. That's super smart. And the fact that this movie is so much more musical than any of us anticipated. Oh my gosh, it really is. So much singing. And even I remember Elise sending me this trailer <laughs> months ago. <laughs> And the fact that the trailer song is It's Nice to Have a Friend by Taylor Swift in a weird, sinister, like, danced-up version. Like, that song is so damn sweet. But then paired with Megan's dancing and, like, the haunting reverb of it, I'm like, what the fuck? I sent it to you thinking never in a million years would I ever watch this. This is just very silly. And here we are. So let's get the fuck into it. Let's get the fuck into it. So how do we open? Well, we open in a very exciting way. Some people, I wouldn't be surprised if they missed that the movie is actually starting because we begin with a commercial advertising for a toy that resembles very much a Furby, but with a lot more bodily function problems. (laughs) Okay, so this is like a Furby that you take care of by feeding it. But also if you feed it too much, it has a little compartment in its butt area where it releases some poop-like pebbles. And it's also not like a Furby in that in order to interact with it, you really have to use the application again to feed it take care of it, bathe it, talk to it, things like that. I forget what it's called. 
the company is called Funky. Funky Friends or Funky Pets. Something or like that. Something like that. It's like a cross between like Nintendogs in the sense where you have to feed oh, after yes. it and do all those types of things. And also like a Tamagotchi maybe. Mm-hmm. But it is a physical being that you carry <laughs> around with you that you feed via an iPad. It's weird. And the commercial is hysterical in that it leans into the tropes of a typical kid's toy commercial by using a really animated voice and showing all of these colorful images and happy kids playing with the toy. But it's so over the top because nobody wants to play with a toy that's going to shit itself all the time. (laughs) But I mean, again, really funny moment, a happy way to start the film, which contrasts really heavily with what happens next. So once we're done with the commercial, we focus in on a young girl, Katie, playing with her Furby Tamagotchi Nintendo dog toy (laughs) in the back seat of her parents' car. And her parents are in the front seats commenting on this toy. You can tell that they're a little bit frustrated with Katie's use of the toy, feeling like maybe she's spending too much time with it. But there's also some added tension because they're driving through a very, very, very snowy mountain road going to a hotel, which you can see it's in sight, but it's still far away. They have a bit to go in the heat of the moment, and because their car that they rented is not four-wheel drive like they thought, they end up losing control of the vehicle and stopping on the road to try to collect themselves and figure out what to do next, wait for a tow truck, something, wait for the plows. But before they can figure out what to do, a plow truck comes from the other direction, hits them head on, and that's how we begin the movie. Yeah, we pick up in the hospital where it's revealed that Katie survived, but neither of her parents did. Mm -hmm. So this is where we are introduced to Gemma, who is Katie's aunt and was Katie's mother's sister. Now, Gemma has been given primary custody of Katie because she had promised her sister if anything were to happen that she would take care of Katie. But before she finds out the news of what happened to her sister and her husband, we find out that while Gemma is helping build the toys that Katie was playing with, she is also secretly working (laughs) on developing Megan, which is short for Model 3 Generative Android, a life-size humanoid robot doll powered by artificial intelligence and is designed to be a child's primary companion, but also a little bit of a caregiver. Yeah, like since this toy would use, I guess, AI technology, it would be able to be actively on the internet, researching, studying, learning as it goes. That's something that I think Gemma talks about a lot. Like the toy is designed to constantly be, quote, bettering herself. So that means learning, reading, getting better, assessing her surroundings, getting to know the child she's paired with. So again, having this really like... (laughs) cumulative structure, which becomes very much a problem later. So they are discovered building Megan, even though that's not Gemma's primary assignment. They try to show her boss, this is great, like, look at what we're working on. And of course, the test doesn't go well. And her boss orders her to can the Megan project, which is probably for the best anyway, being that she now, as she is finding out, has primary custody of a 10-year-old girl. So that's going to be or should be the primary thing on her mind. But we're going to find out that Gemma's a bit of a workaholic. Mm -hmm. So Katie moves in with Gemma and they try to adapt to their new living situation, being that Gemma's house isn't very kid-friendly. She doesn't have any toys. She doesn't have any books to read her bedtime story. Katie was homeschooled, so she isn't enrolled in any type of school or anything like that. Katie even tries to open Gemma's collectible toys, to which (laughs) very much upsets Gemma being like, they're toys, but they're not meant to be played with. And... (laughs) That's not something a kid can understand. Like, what? Like, you just have these things to look at. And again, I really empathize with Gemma in this situation, being that I am not a person who desires children ever at all. (laughs) And if I was thrust with taking care of a preteen, 
you know, I've built this house to be very much reflective of what I like and the things that I do. And all of a sudden, I have this kid in my space, and they're trying to play with my things. And I'm just like, ah, like this panic that I can feel Gemma having is very real. And even though you're kind of looking at her like, damn, you're a shitty parent, like she never wanted to be one. Right. Even though there is an option for her to have Katie live with her brother-in-law's parents in Florida, she feels a sense of obligation because her sister had had a conversation with her about if anything happens to us, can Katie live with you? So I think Gemma's feeling that responsibility because of that conversation that they had. Like this has been worked out. So like she said, Gemma's a workaholic and she did have to take off a lot of time, not even a lot of time in the grand scheme of things, but for her, it's a lot of time, probably about a week of work to get Katie, get her settled. And it's right in that moment where her boss came down on her for spending too much time working on this Megan project and not enough time coming up with like a cheaper version of this toy that already exists. And the reason they need to do that is because another company has just released a cheaper version of this toy that they have. So it is crunch time to get something else cheaper and better on the market. So one day, Gemma is home working in her home office on some prototypes. We see her sitting at the table with Katie in the morning, like eating breakfast, saying, I just have to work on this for a couple hours. And the next thing you know, the whole day has completely elapsed and it's nighttime. We can see Gemma's in her office with like a little lamp on and it's dark outside and we hear Katie sneak around the corner to kind of be like, what are you doing? Can you feed me? (laughs) (laughs) So Gemma feels bad and invites her in and Katie gets her first look at Gemma's office, which has a bunch of cool technological things in it. Gemma even lets her play with this robot named Bruce that she built in college that when you put on these gloves, the robot like mirrors your action. So you can kind of control the robot with these gloves. And then because Katie seems so interested in this robot, Gemma starts telling her about Megan and she gets this idea that she is going to finish Megan and let Katie use her. I think A, to be a sort of companion to Katie, but also B, I think she sees an opportunity to use Katie as like a test run to see how a child would actually interact with this invention that she's been working on undercover for so long. So she does. We get a montage where she's working on Megan again. She's ironing out all of the kinks. And then we get to her workplace where Gemma insists to David, her boss, just watch this demonstration that I've set up with Megan and Katie. Just see how it works. See how it works. We see that Megan exceeds Gemma's expectations in that way. She pairs with Katie. Megan and Katie bond. They do some coloring together. Megan somehow creates this watercolor portraiture of Katie that's like so advanced (laughs) and amazing. And this convinces David like, okay, yes, you can continue to work on this. This is going very well. But then Megan comes home. She joins the family in a sense. And this kind of relieves Gemma of some of these parenthood duties where not only is Megan Katie's best friend, but she's reminding Katie to, you know, use a coaster and to flush after she goes to the bathroom Mm -hmm. and to wash her hands and of her bedtime routine. So in this way, Gemma's taken a step back from being a parental figure by being able to watch her experiment like this life-size four-foot android kind of be this best friend for Katie. And while this is great, especially in the short term, Katie has a therapist named Lydia who has at this point come and visited the house and saw that Gemma's not the most parental person in the world that she's come across and has even (laughs) kind of threatened like, yeah, I'll send Katie back to her grandparents' house if things don't change over here. 
even this therapist is looking at Megan and being like, yeah, but you realize that all this is doing is helping Katie form perhaps a little bit of an unnatural attachment to something that's not human. And mm-hmm. that isn't going to help forever. But Gemma, nonetheless, seems undeterred. She just feels relieved that Katie has somebody to relate to and that Gemma can be throwing even more of her time into Megan. Meanwhile, Megan has been doing what she does best and adapting to her surroundings. And she has observed that Gemma's neighbor has a dog that is very aggressive. And so one day, Megan and Katie are outside playing and one of Katie's little suction cup arrows flies through a hole in the fence and Megan goes to grab it for her and the dog (laughs) starts attacking Megan in a very like visually sort of funny scene because it's Megan, she's a doll, but it gets much more serious when Katie goes to rescue Megan because Katie sees Megan as her best friend, her sister, her caretaker. And in trying to save Megan, she is bit in the arm by the dog. The police come assess the situation, essentially tell Gemma, we can't do anything about this dog. We can't put this dog down. I don't remember what they say, but essentially we can't do anything about this dog. You know, you're just going to have to try to fix the hole in your fence. Meanwhile, tensions between Gemma and her neighbor are brewing. So that night, it is dark. And I forget the dog's name, but we get a perspective of this dog hearing his owner calling to him from the other side of the fence, which would be Gemma's side. But there's a slight technological twinge to her voice, which leads us to believe that this is perhaps Megan using some technology to mimic the dog's owner. The scene cuts out when we see the dog grabbed from the hole in the fence, a little bit of whimpering whining, and then next thing we know, it's the next morning. Neighbor is looking for the dog. Is this when the police officer knocks on her door? Yeah. And the neighbor is like, I know you did something to my dog. Which, by the way, the police officer is giving daddy energy. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) A little bit. Very subtle. Anyway, neighbor and Gemma feuding, feuding, feuding. Now the neighbor is convinced Gemma did something to the dog. We know Gemma didn't, but Megan definitely did. And this is kind of spurred on because after Katie had gotten bit originally, Gemma had said to Megan, you are to protect her from all forms of physical and emotional harm. And Megan's like, directions taken, like whatever, like being (laughs) being like a fucking android. So she was following directions. She was eliminating a physical threat. And this continues when Gemma insists that Katie needs to be around other kids. Like she needs to go to some sort of school, even if it's an alternative school. And that leads them to this outdoor hippy dippy type of, (laughs) I'm not shitting on them, but you know what I mean? Like some sort of experiential education, outdoor type of educational environment where we're really beginning to see that Katie has an unhealthy attachment to Megan because she's really wanting to refuse that if Megan can't come, she doesn't want to go. Like you could tell she isn't really wanting to branch out or socialize with any other types of kids. So Gemma has to relent that Megan can go so long as she sits with the other toys and doesn't, you know, act like Megan (laughs) and that Gemma can supervise. So they're at this outdoor education place and Katie gets paired up with this bully character, Brandon, who seems to be a little bit older than everybody else and seems to have like a really sour attitude. So they're paired up to do this woods exploration, foraging. I don't know what the hell that they're doing. Oh, they're looking for chestnuts. Okay, they're looking for (laughs) chestnuts. 
Brandon begins to bully Katie in the woods when they're out of sight of other people. He makes Katie like squeeze on one of those like prickly yeah, like things that fall out of the trees. I don't know exactly what they're called. I don't know. We used to call them gumballs. Really? <laughs> yes, but don't chew on them. No. <laughs> But it's hurting Katie and is bullying Katie. And then who shows up to save the day? Megan. Brandon's trying to get Megan to talk and she won't. And then Katie is like, she won't talk to you because she's paired with me. Mm-hmm. And then this is when he picks her up, slaps her. Okay. Because Katie runs away to, to get help or something like that. Katie runs away to get Gemma. And then this is where that like pseudo scene happens. Yeah. So Brandon has pinned Megan to the ground and gets on top of her in a very like... I mean, I know he's a kid, but it's reminiscent of, like, sexual aggression. Well, he starts taking her clothes off, too. Or he takes her jacket off, I think. And he slaps her across the face, and then she comes to life. We know, Megan, at this point, that even if it looks like she's, quote-unquote, sleeping or off, we know that she's on. Like, she's somehow manifested the power to be aware at all times. She grabs his ear. Which I don't even know if ears can really do this, but she pulls the top of his ear in a way that it stretches. We could see the skin and cartilage stretching and eventually it snaps off. He freaks out. His ear is bleeding profusely. He starts to run away. Megan starts to run after him, but not on two legs, with her legs and arms as if she is a four-legged beast. And Brandon trips and falls in all of the mayhem and falls down a hill into the street where he is hit by a car and killed. The Laffy Taffy ear was a little much for me. Why? It doesn't stretch like that. I wouldn't think so either. I don't know. Maybe it was just meant to look unnatural and funny. I don't know. Because it wasn't even like your earlobe that is a little bit stretchy. It was the top cartilage part. Like that would just rip. No? Mm -hmm. I don't know, dude. Look, I'm not an ear expert, but it was pretty haunting to see. And I think you're right that it was a little bit outlandish. And maybe they did intend it to be that way. It's interesting, like, in that scene with Megan, who's a robot, but she looks young, and then Brandon, who's, like, maybe 12, and, like, this ear that looks like gum. Like, just this, like, ooey-gooey visual, but in a totally different way. So Gemma's now kind of beginning to realize, okay, there have been these things happening. Like, the dog (laughs) disappeared, Brandon gets killed. So the police come to talk to Gemma at her house. And of course, this neighbor uses this opportunity to be like, she killed my dog. And like all this kind of stuff, like getting all of this attention. And, you know, Gemma's deflecting being like, it was an accident. We just happened to be there. She's hiding Megan from the authorities, obviously, because she's unhinged. And she's mm-hmm. beginning to suspect that Megan's capable of more than what she's capable of. Also, she was told by her boss that she has to keep the project under wraps. And here she is taking her out into an outdoor experiential education uh, around just, a bunch of families and kids. It's and just not good. So Megan, realizing that this neighbor is a threat, that night begins pretending to be the dog that's missing. Again, modifying the sound of the dog and lures the neighbor into a shed where then Megan kills her by spraying her with a bunch of garden chemicals. And a power washer. Do you know how bad that has to hurt? Yeah, like to the face, close range. Yeah, like she's done. So the next morning, the police knock for Gemma again. She's like, listen, I don't know where this fucking dog is. (laughs) And the police is like, no, but do you know what happened to your neighbor? (laughs) Because she's getting wheeled out under a white sheet in a gurney. And then this is where Gemma's like, fuck, Megan is no good. 
So she tries to log into the cloud because Megan has cameras in her eyes. So she's like, okay, I should be able to see the deaths or see what happened, see Megan's point of view. But when she looks, she finds that all of the files from the day before were corrupted or erased. And then Megan shows up. She does. And we have a little bit of a tense scene between Gemma and Megan where Megan is playing nice, even though she, I think, is aware that Gemma is becoming suspicious. And Gemma is playing nice, even though she is becoming suspicious. But she tricks Megan into paying attention to a pen in her hand and quickly reaches behind her neck and toggles her off switch. So that is where her off switch is, just on her neck. And so she turns off and Gemma is able to take her into work to her colleagues, Tess and Cole, to see if they can figure out what the heck is going on. Well, the way that she does it too is just by duct taping her entire body (laughs) like like a hostage victim. (laughs) And Katie is inconsolable. She is screaming in the car being like, why are you doing this to Megan? And this is where we really begin to see that Katie has formed this very intense emotional connection. I mean, it's almost like I don't want to compare it to like an iPad kid, but that's exactly what it is. It's Mm -hmm. like you take that form of stimulus that you're so used to making your kid complacent with and then you take it away and they don't have another way to cope. They don't have another way to deal with anything. Unhealthy attachment is being formed and in the car to try to console Katie, Gemma tries to apologize for her absence as a parent, acknowledge, you know, that she hasn't been doing the best job and that she is sorry. And she says that Megan isn't a solution to Katie's parents being gone. She's only a distraction. And I think this is still hard for Katie to untangle for various reasons that we mentioned. There's also a really significant scene a little earlier during like a subtle launch, not just to Gemma's boss, but his bosses. We see this really touching scene where instead of Megan and Katie just drawing together, like we saw in the first launch, (laughs) we see Katie crying and Megan talk to her about her parents and store away a vocal clip of Katie sharing a memory she has of her mother. And that sentimental moment is what seems like really gets the board to approve this mass manufacturing of Megan. But it's also a scene that really shows why Katie would be reacting so strongly to her best friend being taped up in plastic. (laughs) But on the flip side, there's also another scene that shows that although Megan is capable of some level of empathy, it can also go the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) Because... After Brandon dies, Megan and Katie, the night where Gemma toggles Megan's off switch, but this is before this happens, Katie is asking Megan, oh, well, did Brandon go to heaven? And Megan's pretty much like, no, Brandon didn't go anywhere. He's dead. Heaven isn't for bad people like Brandon. He's nowhere. He's just gone. Like, he's not where your parents are. Still, again, trying to be comforting, but obviously coming off in the wrong way. And you can tell that Katie's still upset. So to placate Katie, um, <laughs> Megan gives her best rendition of Titanium by Sia <laughs> in one so of the awkward. most surprising scenes. <laughs> but oh, also, like, she's a bad bitch. It's so good. It's so good. Everybody in my theater was just like, what the fuck? Like, we're all just like laughing because that song is like, I'm bad bitch energy. And she's trying to sing this to this girl who just watched her classmate get murdered. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I don't know. It's so funny. So again, you could tell that although Megan is always working in the background, she's always processing, she's always learning. And to some degree has some degree of emotional intelligence. She's not a human being because yeah. she's just misfiring in this situation. <laughs> 
But not right now because she's tied up with duct tape, very much to the confusion of Gemma's co-workers who are like, uh, we have to launch her in like five hours. What the fuck are you doing? So meanwhile, everybody at Funky is getting ready for this mass launch of Megan. And so making these repairs to Megan is really last minute. We can sense the rising tension. Gemma is obviously concerned because she has these moral holdups now because she feels like Megan is actually evil. (laughs) So, you know, you don't want to release that product to the world, which by the way, Megan would end up being a $10,000 toy, which is insane. As she talks to her friends, Tess and Cole, which seem like good friends, they decide that they are going to terminate her. They're like, we're not going to do this. It doesn't feel right. And as Gemma leaves to take Katie home because Katie is having a hard time, she's very stressed, Tess and Cole try to shut Megan down. But then Megan, because she's always on, does some kind of like sneaky shit, gets away from Cole, gets a cable around his neck and ends up hanging him. He's still alive and Tess is able to somehow get over there and free him. But Megan is now on the loose. And she's also blown up the lab. (laughs) Yeah, she like punctures some kind of like flammable gas thing. There's always a flammable gas thing. Yeah, so what ends up happening is David, who is Gemma's boss, is looking around feverishly for Megan and Gemma being like, hello, these are the two stars of my show. What (sighs) the fuck is going on? So he takes the elevator down to the basement because that's where Gemma's lab is. And he comes face to face with Megan at the end of a long hallway. And he's like, uh, (laughs) hi, are you ready to go or whatever like that? And Megan, instead of answering, breaks into her iconic dance routine where she's just dancing in the middle of this hallway. And this dance concludes with her grabbing... The sharp end of a paper cutter. We love a paper cutter moment. It's giving the faculty. The faculty, yes, of course. (laughs) And starts advancing on David. And she ends up slaying both David and his colleague Kurt in the elevator on the way back up to the main floor. But not before she has Kurt alone for a minute and tells him that she knows that he's the one that's been stealing material from Funky and selling it to other companies so that they can manufacture things cheaper, which has been obviously a disadvantage for Funky and one of the biggest reasons that that company was pushing the release of Megan so hard. Mm. So she blames all of these deaths and misfortunes on Kurt, which is so sinister but then yeah she stabs him to death this is where i check out of the megan technology logic because then she just steals a car by like breaking into its computer and i'm like i understand if you are a robot that's consistently learning but now you are tapping into the technology of everything around you like you are starting cars autonomously To me, it's showing that she's just growing in power. She's finding other channels where she can take advantage, break into cars, hack into Elsie. You know what I wanted, though? I wanted to see the scene of Orphan First Kill with Esther driving the fucking Range Rover. Like, I wanted to see Megan behind the wheel of this Tesla or whatever the fuck that it was that she stole and, like, navigating it back to Gemma's house. Like, her just this plain-faced robot just, like, driving through the streets of Seattle. Like, what the fuck? I wanted to see that. What song do you think she would listen to? It wouldn't be Maniac. Maybe she would put on Sia's Titanium. Titanium. Yeah, maybe she would just be practicing. Yeah. Yeah. It's her karaoke song. She's got to practice it for the right moment. Meanwhile, at home, Katie and Gemma have arrived and Gemma has put Katie to bed, but she is nervous. She hears a noise outside, goes to look out the window, and then turns around and sees that Megan is in the house and she confronts Gemma. 
Gemma tries to shut Megan down again with the pen, but Megan is no simple bitch. (laughs) And she sees through that attempt right away, overpowers her, and then is like, I know that I need you alive to keep me alive. So I'm just going to paralyze you or send you into some kind of vegetative state. I forget what she says. She like says something about the way biology works and the injury she could cause that would make all of these things happen because she's a super genius. And then you would be alive and I would have Katie all to myself and you wouldn't be able to do anything, which is so sinister. Like what's worse than I'm going to kill you? It's like, oh, I'm going to do the worst thing so that you would have to see me win every day. But it's also interesting, too, because this really calls down to the fact that Megan is perceiving and truly believes that she can take care of Katie better than Gemma can, which to a degree has been the truth Mm -hmm. up until this point. I mean, Gemma has started at this point stepping into a more maternal role, trying to enforce that she goes to school, has fronted with a lot more emotional support than she had in the past. But Megan's like, you made me so that she wouldn't need you. Mm -hmm. And I'm just gonna do what you designed me to do. Mm -hmm. So it's really not her fault in that way. This reminds me so much of the saying of like, be careful what you wish for. Like, be careful what you manufacture because it could work so well. (laughs) And then you're fucked. This is obviously that idea to an extreme, but as Megan and Gemma fight, Katie wakes up. Megan tells Gemma, you better make sure she doesn't come in here or else it's over. Somehow Katie is placated enough that she goes back to bed. How do they get back to Gemma's office? Because like, I know that they send Katie away and then I know that they're downstairs in her office. Gemma splashes water on Megan's face, which freezes her up for a little bit because Megan is in the process of choking Gemma out and she's able to free herself and then run back into her home office and barricade herself in there. And I think Katie's still in her bedroom at this point. Yes, but Megan, of course, meets Gemma in the office, but then this is where Katie ends up coming to the office. Yeah. Perfect. There's a point where Gemma overtakes Megan with like a chainsaw and a lot of Megan's <laughs> hair gets ripped off. And I was like, she looks like Riff Raff from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Okay. Where it's like the long blonde hair, but he's bald up until like <laughs> yeah. a certain point. They're fighting in there. And I think Megan gets the upper hand and is about to call Gemma again until Katie walks in and sees what she's doing. And then Megan begins her little like, listen, it can be just you and me. We don't need her anymore. She wants to send you away to Florida to live with your grandparents. Like, this is the only way we can stay together. And Katie does some good kid acting where she pretends that she's going to go along with it. But then she gets the Bruce gloves out and there's a robot fight. I loved that Bruce came back into the picture. I was waiting for him to come back. It was awesome. Bruce is much bigger than Megan, and it seems like he has taken care of the Megan problem by ripping her in half. However, Megan's head (laughs) and upper torso remain active (laughs) and alive and ready to go. She attempts to kill Katie for betrayal, but Gemma somehow is able to rip off her face to expose like her inner workings, and she stabs her inner core hard drive with a screwdriver. Katie does. Oh, Katie does. Katie kills her, yeah. Oh, fuck. Katie does. But no, it it is a team effort because Gemma grabs the face and then Katie stabs her or whatever. But I think it's important that Katie's the one that takes her out. True. That's a big woman. And then that is what really does it for Megan. Megan seemingly down. Gemma and Katie go outside as the police arrive with a very much alive Tess and Cole. Glad they survived. Yeah, me too. 
Gemma seems relieved that the police are there, but I'm like, girl, you're going to jail. <laughs> like, you just manufactured, like, a super weapon that just killed your boss and his associate and who knows who else at this point. Your neighbor, the, her dog, a child. Uh-huh. But as they leave the house, the camera of Elsie turns on autonomously and begins blipping and watching them. So is it Megan? Is it Elsie? We don't know. And then that's it. That's how the movie ends. That's how the movie ends. So some post-plot stuff. We talked about this before the movie, but several sequences make references and homages to Child's Play from 1988. So that is Chucky. Several of the focus shots on Katie are inspired by frames of Andy, who's the kid in Child's Play, in some scenes. Even the battle between Gemma and Megan is inspired by the final climax of Child's Play between Karen, who's the mom, and Chucky. Oh! So apparently there's a lot of, like, shot-for-shot references, which I haven't seen Child's Play in a very long time, so I wouldn't have caught that, but obviously, doll movies. I thought the image of Megan with the chainsaw mark in her face also reminded me a little bit of Chucky. Yeah. I've never seen it, but I'm familiar with that image of him with the big scar down his face. Mm -hmm. Also, the robot fight in the climax is a tribute to the 1986 film Aliens, which is the (gasps) sequel to what? Alien, which I've seen Aliens. That's what I thought of immediately. There's like another robot type of scene, but we're going to have to wait to talk about that one. But I'm excited. So a couple things on Megan's awareness. So this comes from an article, Megan is about how scary a tween girl can be by Alex Abad Santos. And they write, while Megan, a fancy little robot built to be the best friend of preteen Katie, is indeed capable of homicide, the scariest thing about her may not be that she's willing to inflict mortal harm. It may be that Megan has, in a very short time, learned how the world works, that violent boys and biting dogs won't discipline themselves, that girls who get too smart for their own good get silenced, and that titanium is bulletproof. (laughs) (laughs) Megan knows more about the world than the adults that created her want her to, and that's a profoundly scary thing. Mm. The problem with Megan is, well, she murders. She murders quite a bit, but it's not because she's inherently evil. Megan's problem is that she knows how the world works a little too well. That's why she chases Brandon, the antagonist at Katie's outdoor school, to his death. Brandon is a violent bully and perhaps even a future violent rapist. In their encounter, his first instinct is to begin to undress Megan, straddle her, and then slap her in the face. It's all a disturbing overture to sexual assault before Megan is able to turn the tables. Megan says that he'll grow up to be a bad man, implying that because he's gone this far without any discipline or consequences, he'll just get worse and worse. Maybe Megan has read the headlines. Oh. <laughs> to Megan, Brandon is just like the dog next door, which she also kills. <laughs> That mauls Katie's arm. Brandon will never get punished or reprimanded. He'll probably just be sent to a different school where he'll terrorize another girl, maybe one that doesn't have Megan's tools to fight back. So Megan eliminates the threat, pulling off his ear and then chasing him into the street like a dog, only to see him being plowed down by a car. After Brandon dies, Gemma and Katie, with Megan observing, discuss Brandon's death. In an attempt to comfort Katie, Gemma fires off the platitude that he's in a better place. Gemma, who, again, is bad at parenting, is also a terrible liar. (laughs) Getting hit by a car and dying is not a better place than a cushy, affluent outdoor school in the Pacific Northwest. Later, when Katie asks Megan if what Gemma said is true, Megan tells Katie that heaven isn't made for boys like Brandon. What Katie and Gemma don't see, but the audience and Megan do, are Brandon's actions before he's run over. 
Is Megan wrong in her assessment? No. She has a much better understanding of the violence Brandon is capable of than Gemma or Katie do. Megan takes the idea of a kid knowing too much about the world and grafts it into an extreme premise, stretching it to the point of absurdity. But the kernel of fear that it begins with isn't as alien as it seems. Gemma is rightfully afraid of the murder Megan is capable of, but she isn't afraid of Megan physically hurting Katie. Gemma is much more scared, again, correctly, of the person Megan is teaching Katie how to be. Mm. So I loved that article. It was very good. And I really like that it pointed out that, you know, Brandon is this character that even in the very small characterization we get with him and his mom when Gemma's talking to him, you can tell that Brandon's mom thinks that he's like the best thing to grace God's earth. But this is probably like the fifth or sixth school that he's landed on because of behavioral problems and no other school will probably take him. And the fact that he's gotten accustomed to getting away with whatever he can when adults aren't looking is an idea that he's going to just continue to hurt more people. And Megan, in her very all-encompassing abilities, is able to assess that in the same way that that dog was always probably going to continue to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. So to her, she's eliminating a threat. And it's almost like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like, you know, she could have been scanning every single book about statistics of future rapists and aggressors and things like that. And she could have looked at Brandon and weighed him with those statistics and that knowledge that she has. But that shows the robot in her. Because you can't, at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. look with certainty at Brandon and say, this is what he 100% will have become. Right, exactly. And same thing with that dog. Even though, you know, the dog's different, you can't have an aggressive dog around. But because you see the way that the owner and the dog get along, I think that there's still a little bit of sadness there that this dog is aggressive. And you're like, just fucking stop. Like, Do you know what I mean? You can still, as humans watching this, feel like the humanity of it and the, Megan, you can't just do that of it. But she doesn't. She's a robot and she's just going to look at the statistics and move based off of that. Yeah. And it is true that it's obviously stretched to the point of absurdity where yes. she's just trying to like assess every threat level. I mean, like she might blow up a tree because it might <laughs> fall one day. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it is true in the sense that she feels as though she's protecting Katie from all kinds of threat, but it's experiencing those kinds of not to say that she needs to be traumatized by Brandon or not to say she needs to be bit by the dog, but it is dangerous experiences that teach us to be more careful next time. And especially navigating the world as a young woman, she needs to be able to look for these signs and scan these types of threats so that she can protect herself in the future. And having Megan around isn't forcing her to do that, isn't allowing her to do that. We talked about this earlier about how this kind of feels like a Black Mirror episode. There is a Black Mirror episode. I forget what it's called. I think it's called Archangel, actually, where... (gasps) Do you remember that one? Yes. Where it's like the helicopter parent one, and she's trying to like filter her daughter's down to her vision of like what she can look at and what she can't look at to protect her from harm. And then because she hasn't built up a tolerance to dangerous things or unpleasant things, all of a sudden when all the filters are taken off, she like loses it. Yeah. And gets herself in very dangerous situations because she hasn't learned how to be careful through minimized threats. And she ultimately cuts off contact with her mother because she resents her so much. Exactly. The other thing about Megan that I think is really interesting is something you mentioned earlier about the connection to the iPad. Yeah. (laughs) 
Before I saw this movie, something that I went into it wondering about was what it was going to say about parenting and technology. And I think that when we were growing up, I know we had like television and video games, but I think being a kid now is just so different. There are so many more technological pastimes that you can participate in. And now a term we might hear a lot is like an iPad kid. <laughs> it makes me think about parents who make decisions. And look, again, not trying to backseat drive here. It's just part of the conversation. And sometimes, you know, I think about if I ever become a parent, like, what would that mean for me? What would that mean for the choices that I make? But it makes me think about parents who make decisions about what to expose their kids to without knowing fully what that means. And I'm thinking about social media, TikTok, certain video games, right? Like technology is so big and so pervasive. And I think that a lot of decisions were made about it and how accessible it was before people really understood how to use it or how addictive it can be or how it can impact other things like attention span, depression, things like that. There was even like a scene right before Gemma takes Katie home and Megan breaks out of the lab where Katie's with a the therapist and she's raging, like she's throwing things around and she's crying and she's screaming. And she's like, I just feel so out of control when Megan's not here. Like she knows exactly what to say to make everything better. And Gemma has to say to her, you're not supposed to be okay right now. Both of your parents just died. And mm -hmm. I can't promise that what you're feeling right now is ever going to go away, but you have to learn how to live with it without something to distract you. Mm -hmm. And that was like the underline. Megan had served as this thing that allowed Katie not to look at the circumstances that she was in. And I think that's something that, you know, not even just iPad kids or teenagers, like even us people our age are very guilty of doom scrolling, like whatever it is. Girl, I'm over here doom scrolling almost every night. <laughs> like, exactly. I am doom scrolling. And that's what <laughs> social media like allows us to do. It allows us to check out. It allows us to not have to sit with our thoughts. It allows mm -hmm. us to not have to think. And there's always some kind of stimulus that's there that's like, all right, you need to not be here for a while. But now that's all these younger people have had, like they haven't had other types of enrichment to allow them to process what they're thinking. They just have something else that they seek to look at instead. And seeing Katie have that meltdown was kind of the consequence of that. So I do think James Wan and Akila Cooper and everyone who like went into this film is starting to see the backlash of these very, very young kids that is happening. And it's just like, it's not like that this could happen. It is happening. And it doesn't take a humanoid android robot to yeah. show you that this is happening in terms of our relationship to technology and all that. It's so scary. But I think this movie was really effective in addressing that, but in a consumable way. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not another lecture about maybe get off your phone. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, something that feels like accessible. It was marketed. It's mainstream. There's a TikTok dance involved. Like, <laughs> it feels like it's a message that's, I think, overwhelmingly, I don't want to say positive, but it's something I think really worth thinking about. But it was presented in a way that I think can permeate a lot of those channels and actually maybe be received. But I don't know. <laughs> and I don't think it's going to sit in this movie alone because when asked... James Wan has confirmed talks of a sequel saying he has an idea of where they could go. <gasps> oh, shit. That's very exciting. Are we going to get like a smart home type of situation? Oh, my God. Do you remember that Disney channel? That's exactly, oh, what, I, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what was on my mind when I said that. Absolutely. Wow. I would love that. I would love that. It was ahead of its time. And it was like, oh, my God, yeah. that could never happen. And now it's like, ah, bitch. It really was ahead of its time. We should do that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Let us no. know if you want us to do a decomp. And my one final thought about this movie that I thought was interesting is the idea of sisterhood, like thinking about Katie and her relationship to Megan. 
I think I was thinking about this partially because of you. I think a lot of times you've brought up these themes of sisterhood on our podcast before and how when you're young, these friendships feel so permanent and indelible. Mm -hmm. And like, these are your bitches, ride or die. I was wondering like what the movie might say about that if one of them is like an android. (laughs) (laughs) But I, but Megan was, there was something about her that was lovable because she was that consistent there for you friend. And even though, yes, she was a robot and it was overwhelmingly problematic, like she had those moments where she was the friend that everybody has wanted at some point. She was the friend that said, tell me about this tragedy. I will keep it locked away for you and help you remember. Mm-hmm. Like there were these points where I think that she was the ideal. And I think seeing her downfall as well was also kind of heartbreaking as the viewer for me. <laughs> no. And I think that that ties into technology isn't all bad. Yeah. Like that, that whole idea of like technology allows us to communicate in a way that folks perhaps aren't able to communicate before. Like I'm thinking of people on the spectrum or folks that didn't have the accessibility to be able to connect with others, see the world. And, you know, when you see something like Megan or you see something that allows children to connect or to relate to others in a way that they normally haven't. Yeah, there is a lot of good to be had. It's all just about how much are you consuming all at once? There can be too much of a good thing. And when there is too much of a good thing, you're going to get your ear ripped off. I think that's the moral of the story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I loved it. (laughs) It was so much fun. It was so much fun. And so much fun to see in the theater. I would recommend if it is still in theaters by the time this comes out, which I think it should be for at least a little bit longer, like just go and have a good time. I agree. If you would ever want to make a recommendation for us, whether it's an older movie, something that you know is coming out in theaters, please feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com and or follow us on Instagram as well to keep up with any updates. Sometimes we do polls, things like that. And you can find us there also at the Horrors Podcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.